Hey, Sandbox Cooperative listeners. Before we get into today's episode, we want to make a quick announcement. As part of our goal for 2019, we hope to have more and more interactive conversations with our listeners. So here are a few ways you can help make that happen. First, we'd love to have you let us know what you wonder about. Have a question, thought, or something you're curious about? Let us know. Also, if you know someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, send them our way. We're always on the lookout for people who are doing great work that we can share with you. If you have something you'd like to share, you can send us a message via social media. You can email us at podcast at sandboxcooperative.com, or you can call and leave us a voice message at 507-722-1086. Thanks. We look forward to the conversation. Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So we are about to enter into yet another election cycle. Did the, last, the, did the last one end? Uh, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> oh, man. But once again, uh, immigration issues are at the forefront of it all. And with that in mind and with everything that just kind of all the conversation that's mm-hmm. been going on, we wanted to do a short series of episodes on this topic. But of course, with the caveat that we're not experts in this. We're not experts on many things, but <laughs> you know, as a society, it feels like we've done a real disservice to this conversation and we've relegated it to sound bites, caricatures, political footballs. I think we should all be very careful and suspect around anyone who would oversimplify the issue of immigrants and refugees. Legally and personally, there is a lot more to consider uh, than really meets the eye. Yeah. And I think the one thing that maybe we do want to or can offer uh, to this conversation is that I think if we started the conversation with the worth and value and dignity of people, mm-hmm. we might have a different conversation. I don't know what the political answers would be. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we would necessarily agree on the best policy, but I think the conversation might look different. Can we acknowledge the humanity of the other? Absolutely. So yeah. with that with that in mind uh, and, and trying to do that, trying to provide a space for that, we want to replay a conversation that we had way back in episode 12. Uh, a few years ago, the Syrian re- refugee crisis was all over the news, pictures were showing up everywhere of people fleeing violence in their home country. And of course, fear and a heated conversation on immigration were at the center of our political discourse. And in the middle of all that, we had a conversation with Scott Hicks. He's a lawyer in Ohio whose practice centers on immigration law uh, to dispel some of the fears and misconceptions around this process. He had a post on Facebook that went viral, and that's how we learned about him. And he was gracious enough uh, to talk with us. And so here's the conversation. Scott is a lawyer in Lebanon, Ohio, and we'd like to welcome him to the Sandbox. Uh, welcome, Scott. Well, thank you for having me. Scott, you are a an immigration lawyer. Is that correct? I, I do. Yes, I'm an, a lawyer who uh, focuses his practice on immigration. I, I kind of have to say it that way because in Ohio, if I say it as an immigration lawyer, then they claim I'm claiming to be a specialist. So, okay. Well, okay. I'm not allowed I'm not allowed to say those words, but other people do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'll just say it for you. Um, cuz I'm in Minnesota and they can't touch me here, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tell me about your practice. Well, you know, I started uh, actually when I was in law school, I started learning about immigration law uh, through a it was an, an internship and 
I, I, I've always had a, an interest in the world mm-hmm. and peoples from all over the world. I, I traveled uh, some when I was in college, um, I, and my degree ended up actually being in international studies. And so it was just kind of a natural fit. And when I, when I started working with this, this population, mm-hmm. it was like, yeah, this is, this is the kind of law that I would love to be able to, to practice as much as possible. And uh, it just kind of grew over time. Um, it, it, it's, it's an, my immigration is, is such a complex field. Um, right. it, it's only really rivaled by tax law. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I, and, and, and the more you do, the more you realize, oh my gosh, there's exceptions and exceptions to exceptions. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so, uh, and, and so I, I kind of fell into, uh, trial work and, and, and working with, uh, populations who were fleeing oppression, uh, fleeing persecution, um, really from, you name the hotspot, I've probably had somebody that, that was scared to death to go back to that country. Sure. And asylum law and refugee law are really the same. It's just asylees are processed here, whereas refugees are processed outside the United States. But the, but the legal standard's the same for both. And so... Uh, over the years, I've, I've just, I can't even begin to tell you how many people I've represented um, from all over the world. And, and it's, it's a very difficult field, uh, and, and, you, and you have relationships that last for years. Right. I, I mean, I've got right now, I've got a case that's on appeal at the Sixth Circuit, and uh, I, I think I started with her probably almost 10 years ago. Wow, and and that's not atypical uh, for immigration stuff. I mean, I've got people really that I started with back in ninety six, ninety seven, mm-hmm. when I first started practicing, and uh, they're still my clients, and I'm still doing stuff for them. So, it's a very unique field in the sense that you get very close to to your clients, and you work with them for a very long time, and and many of them, you know, uh, at least in the refugee and asylum field. Uh, they have been through so much that it's just almost unfathomable to listen to these people. You know, they they come from. It sounds like, like you said, hotspots around the world, and and then they are having a tough time finding anywhere where they can just legally be legally just so. Live. Yeah. So what's the for someone who hasn't been able to enter the U.S. yet, and maybe that's their goal um, in fleeing from their from their home country? I mean, what's the reality for this person, maybe day to day? Like, what are they facing and dealing with as yeah. they're trying to find their new their new home? Well, the reality is that um, if you look at wherever the if you look at, for example, your nightly news, and you say, "Oh my gosh, this country's blowing up. It's just imploding, and and horrible things are happening." Usually it takes about three to five years before you start seeing that population actually showing up in the U.S. And, um, and that's kind of what we're seeing with the Syrian thing. I mean, it, the, the, the Assad regime imploded and, and went, devolved into civil war. People started streaming out of the country. And now, several years later, we're just now starting that, that real process of, of resettling people. Um, and, for example, I've got a lot of clients who fled the, the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm. And I, we're still bringing refugees over from mm-hmm. back, you know, they fled in 94. And, and there's just, some of them are just now getting here. 
So it's a, it's a long process. Um, and it, it, it of course starts with a catastrophic event in some country. Um, and, and people, they basically flee to wherever they think is the closest refuge that they can get to initially, which is going to be the countries right next door. And, uh, and then they basically, depending on the host, the host country's ability to absorb, they usually end up just in camps. Uh, and, and that's when the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, shows up and starts giving, you, you know, you've seen the pictures of the tents and the water distribution and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're there. You know, you've got other uh, non-governmental organizations uh, that are there trying to give emergency aid and, and sustenance. And, of course, you know, then eventually our de- our Department of State begins to, to, to help as well, evaluate who's there. And, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's just a process of who's really in what shape. We've, and, and maybe only 1%, it's actually less than 1% of all refugees worldwide are considered good candidates for resettlement. So one of the things that I read uh, in this v- bit of a viral post that uh, came through Facebook that, that you had written was just how extensive it is. And so with in light of the national news right now around Syrian refugees, what is the process that takes them from I, I, I've left my home to I'm in the United States in a new home? There, there is so much that you detailed in there. Uh, it, is there a way that you could just show how extensive that process is? Because clearly it takes, it takes years. Uh, but right. It, it takes, I mean, our government right now is estimating it's 18 to 24 months for the processing. Now, in my experience, that's a pretty generous estimate in terms of on the short end. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that's because we have, basically we have quotas. We, we really only take, traditionally, for the last, I don't know, 10 years at least, We've only been taking in about 70,000 refugees a year. Well, you know, you've got several million people in, a, in an area, and granted only, you know, sm- only a small percentage of those are really actively being considered for resettlement, but still you can see that there's far more people that need the assistance than we're actually willing to, to allow to come. And so and, and one thing that many people really don't understand is that you, you can't just okay, I, I'm going to leave Syria, I'm going to show up in a refugee camp, I'm going to knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm Syrian, I want to go to the United States. Because it doesn't work that way. Um, it, it's not the refugee's choice where they get to go. So they come in, they're registered, uh, and UNHCR, the NGOs, the State Department, they kind of they have a triage system. Who are we really looking at? And the people we prioritize... Uh, we've got three levels of priority. People that have just been through such horrific exper- experiences and who have no viable long-term option to stay where they're at. Uh, that's a priority. The second priority are, are we've got a bunch of people, groups that over the years we have favored. Um, you know, So, for example, uh, we still are, are putting as a preference uh, former Soviet Union refugees or former uh, Vietnamese people who are now refugees. 
where there are certain African countries that we're prioritizing, and, and you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, those are going to be people groups that we're we're prioritizing um, for consideration. And then the third category of priority are refugees who actually already have somebody in the United States uh, that's uh, that's here legally. And mm-hmm. so if, if you've already got family here, then that would be a consideration in, in terms of, okay, maybe it would be appropriate to, bring, to reunite the family. So those are the people we're looking at in terms of general priorities. And essentially, they register, they have to give information, documents, uh, they're interviewed, uh, they go through a, a bunch of different security checks, uh, essentially, all of the the various federal entities that are involved with you know, with terror identification and counterterrorism, they're they're running the security checks on each individual, and and if everything seems okay, at least initially, then they'll bring the people in for personal interviews, and we send people over from the Department of Home, Homeland Security who've been specially trained in interviewing the, these population groups. And uh, the, the, there's the personal interview. Um, there's a, an example out of a, a, a refugee family that I think was relocated in the Philadelphia area. And she re, the, the mother related that they were in Turkey and they had multiple interviews. And not only was they would interview the family together, but they would also take each individual including the children, and they would separate them and interview each person separately. Just to kind of check and cross-check yeah. what the story is. And, and what the mother related was that she said the questions they were asking were so detailed that it was obvious that they had done additional homework and investigation mm. because they were asking us questions that nobody who who hadn't done that and didn't know more of our background would never have been able to figure out how to ask. That's fascinating. So, I mean, these are, these are really detailed interviews in particular for the Syrians, because we we're subjecting them to heightened scrutiny already. Obviously we have concerns, you know, we want to make sure who we're letting in. And so if they pass that aspect and that, and the other thing that, that also is going on is every time that a new piece of information comes up, they cycle back through the process. So, for example, if a new address pops up or a new relative or something like that, if it pops up, they're going to cycle all that back through the security checks. It may require another interview. And so all of this is going on. And if they, if they get to that point, then they start to consider, okay, is this person actually eligible to come to the United States? And, and we've got an extensive array of, of disqualifying events in people's backgrounds where, you know, if somebody says the wrong thing or has done the wrong thing, okay, sorry, you don't qualify. And th- what many people don't understand is the, the predisposition is not yes. The right. predisposition is no. And so if, if the officer has any question at all, if he has any doubts at all, the answer is no. You know, we know, uh, for example, a, a refugee family uh, from Burundi, mm-hmm. and the guy was he was denied refugee resettlement because he he had a restaurant, 
and he had provided a meal to a group that we considered uh, a terrorist organization. And, and they, we, our government interpreted that as you were supporting terrorism. Hmm. Now, I think most of us would kind of go, how, how is that supporting terrorists? Right. But that's the kind of standard that's being applied routinely all over uh, in, this, in this processing. And so if they pass the background checks, if they pass the, the kind of the, the life experience disqualifying checklist, hmm. then they still have to pass a medical exam. And at that point, if they're cleared to go, then we contact the the voluntary agencies here and basically say, okay, we've got some people that are ready to, that we're ready to send. You need to make arrangements. And uh, there's nine uh, resettlement agencies in the United States uh, who participate in that, and, and they basically they set everything up. I, for example, I know a uh, you know in, in Ohio, at least in my area, the only agency that that does this is is the catholic church okay. and and so we've got some refugee populations um that that they and they tend to try to keep groups more or less together they don't want to just throw somebody out there all on their own and they're the only uh rwandan family right. in the city or they're the only burmese family or whatever i mean they just because they, they realize that's a recipe for real problems. Sure. So they try to put them in and link them into a community uh, when they bring them over. So uh, hmm. that's, that's kind of the, the process in a nutshell. So not very extensive, then. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, no, no steps and no hurdles at all. <laughs> I keep hearing this, and I, I, it's amazing to me that the dialogue is what it is around, uh, in particular, Syrian refugees given this extensive process um i mean is it just because people don't know this i mean do you think that it's it really is just this this fear of the unknown um i don't know how much how much you can maybe say but i mean is there something that we can be doing to be changing that is there something that we can be doing to kind of alter the opinion of of really what's going on to be honest i i don't know um i i wrote that piece uh on my facebook post and it, it was in response to a friend of ours, and I had I had posted a, a, a link to an article in the Cincinnati newspaper uh, about the first Syrian refugee family that was resettled here in, in the Cincinnati area. And she had commented on something, and then one of her friends asked a question, and she said, okay, well, I'm waiting for Scott to, to answer that, because I'm sure when he weighs in, he'll be able to tell us some of this stuff. And so I... That's kind of what got this started, uh, and I, I posted a brief answer to her, and then I thought, you know, I really ought to do a, a better explanation, and so I, I wrote that piece that I did, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I looked at it and thought, oh my gosh, I mean, this is long, legal, dry, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, 330,000 shares later, you're oh, like, geez. wow, what just happened here? And uh, it, so I think people, I think people do want information, and, and part of the problem is, People don't know what to believe, mm-hmm. and so you've got you've got politicians. I call it the silly season. You know, we're going into a presidential election cycle. You know, and, and politicians say things that you can't summarize immigration policy in a sentence unless you're a politician. In which case, it becomes something that you're throwing to your base, mm-hmm. and and 
you, you know, ever since 9-11, I feel like we as a country have been driven by the cycles of fear. You know, fear yeah. seems to be what dominates our politics and, and dominates a lot of our policies. And, and I think that people, they, they, they're afraid, they don't know what the real facts are, and they don't know who to trust. And, and, you know, if you turn on the talk radio, you turn on the news, what you hear is, is not extensive, and, and it tends to be just, you know, oh, my gosh, the world, you know, we have to be careful about all this. And, and, and so you end up with a fear-driven conversation mm-hmm. um, that's, that's in many ways divorced from reality because, you know, we've allowed since 9-11 – We've allowed over 800,000 refugees to, to resettle in the United States. Of that 800,000 plus, we have three people that have been convicted of attempted terrorism. And the attempt wasn't even in the United States, it was abroad. Um, I believe they were from, originally from Iraq. And, and when, when that happened, the system basically stopped and said, hmm, you know, maybe we should be double checking X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've got a it, – it is a bureaucracy, but it's a bureaucracy that, that is very concerned about don't make a mistake because nobody, nobody in the DHS, nobody in these counterterrorism people, they don't want their name attached to, you know, the, the guy that lets so-and-so in. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. they're, they're very cautious about this, and they're constantly evaluating, you know, how's our system working? What protocols are we using? Are we missing anything? Do we need to add something? And, and, you know, if you really get into the weeds and you start reading some of this stuff about what the government's talking about, uh, you know, you can, it's, you know, well, it'd be good bedtime reading for most people. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of challenges with getting here and then there's the challenges of kind of our political rhetoric and all those sorts of things that that we're dealing with and, and, maybe taking part in, unfortunately, in some cases, but um, for people who are able to make it here as refugees, what, in your experience, has been maybe the biggest obstacle for them once they're here? Well, yeah, they're literally coming here and starting with nothing. I mean, they, they basically have the clothes on their back. Um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a pastor friend uh, who, every time that, uh, that we are relocating people uh, from the, the Congo, that the community will call them and say, you know, we've got a, a mother and eight kids coming, and and they're going to have an apartment on such and such a street. Well, you know, he he what he ends up doing is he ends up running around and making phone calls and trying to get furniture and trying to get clothing and trying to get uh, you know basic household items so that and then when they're here, he he shows up and he visits with them and he he provides them transportation. So they, they're starting literally with nothing. Oftentimes they don't know the English language well. Um, they're coming to a new culture. And, but, but they're overwhelmingly grateful and feeling safe for the first time maybe in years. Mm. And, and so their goal is simply, I, I want, for the parents, it's I want to, I want to get a job, and I want to try to get su- su- sustainable, you know, in my life, in my economics, and I want my children to succeed. 
And so they, you know, the, the refugee communities have historically uh, really emphasized work and education. Um, but they need, obviously, they, they, they just need help getting yeah. started from scratch. They need a toehold. They need somebody to be looking out for them. Right. And, and our government, I mean, they, they do give them a, 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 some assistance, but it's, it's only for a temporary time. You know, the expectation really is, you know, okay, after six months or so, we expect you to basically be, have a job and, and start assimilating and, and integrating into, into your society, and, and we don't want to be helping you forever. And so a lot, of, a lot of times that's the transition point where, you know, people in the community are, are stepping forward and saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to make sure that, that, that your kids get to, to school. We're going to make sure that you're, you know, you're getting uh, some help with transportation, or we're going to make sure that you, for example, in Ohio, you know, winter comes along, you know, these people may or may not have ever experienced anything below 40 degrees, you know, so, <laughs> you know, they need winter clothing. And, and so there's a lot of, of, of individuals who go very unsung, uh, who, who just pour their lives into helping people. So maybe back to that, that question that I asked earlier, I mean, maybe that's the thing that we need to be be doing. I mean, maybe that's that's really interesting to hear because I had no idea what assistance, if any, was provided. But, you know, it sounds like that the people coming over here that are, are able to make it, that they're just kind of in a spot where the thing they need most is just some, some extra help. Right. And it, it's easier when you, when you have a, a mother and a father they're able to come because typically the father's able to, to go out and start working immediately. And, um, but there's a lot of families I mean, that they don't know where the, one of the parents is. I mean, that assumed or presumed dead. Uh, and so you, you, you have a lot of times where uh, the families have been separated. And, and that's one of the other issues that, that is oftentimes pressing on, on people's minds is they managed to get here, but their their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, their you know their husband or wife is somewhere, and sometimes they know where, and sometimes they don't. So they're still frantically searching and and sending word back to the refugee camps. Do you have you seen my husband? Do you know where my brother is? And and so a lot of people are are really dealing with the trauma of not just what they've been through, but now they don't even know if their loved one is still alive or not. And, and when they do find them, uh, it's not always easy to get them here. And, and, uh, and the bureaucratic paperwork that goes with that uh, is, is really intimidating for somebody that, A, is never really legally trained, and English is not their first language, and so they're, they're trying to work their way through it, through the bureaucracy, to, uh, to get reunited with their family. Mm. We're just shaking our heads at each other right now because it's uh, in addition to you know the uh, so many hurdles, so many uh, so many pieces to the puzzle. But the the complexity, I I thought you know I thought I had a I thought I had a complex life. Um, this is crazy. This is amazing, amazing. Well, I, it is it is amazingly complex, and and that's that's where for me the reality is that. I, I get the fear. I mean, I, I get that people are afraid of the unknown. They don't understand the process. But the refugee program is, is such a difficult road. And, and the people who are involved, I mean, for example, we, we bring in people 
uh, uh, like 70000 a year. And the president has proposed that for fiscal year 2016, we bump that up to, to 85000 Well, of that number, 50% of them are going to be kids. Another 25% of them are elderly. And the remaining of the remaining 25%, the overwhelming majority of those are, are the parents or uh, of the children or caretakers of the elderly parents. I think it's maybe 2% of, of that total uh, uh, population is going to be young, single, of combat age. So wow. the and, and people don't get that. And, and, you know, it's like, okay, the two-year-old is not a threat. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and you pe- know, people don't just, get that, but they they're also... They're not. <laughs> Yeah, and people don't get that, but they also, I mean, for some reason, aren't willing to to see that. I mean, that's one thing that I actually was kind of curious about because I had seen, you know, a number of people posting on Facebook or I heard a number of people saying, you know, oh, most of them are, you know, young young males, and I just, I was like, I can't, no. I can't believe that that would be true. Well, and I think I, what unfortunately the, the happened is the. The images that you saw on the news of, of these massive waves of, of people going into Europe, coupled with the Paris yeah. uh, terrorism, and and that's exactly what people are afraid of, and and so they're linking those those, those events with our refugee resettlement, and and what people don't understand is that those massive waves of, of migrants into Europe are they are a lot more young men but that's not refugee resettlement what they're doing is they're they're checking them in for example in Greece and they're saying okay we've registered you go on to Germany go on to Sweden go on to wherever and and apply for asylum when you get there well that's exactly the opposite of what we're doing so you've got hundreds of thousands of, of people coming into Europe basically with no vet, no check, no cross-checks, nothing, and and saying, okay, yeah, we've stamped you in, now go apply and we'll check you later. Hmm. Well, that is a recipe for a concern, yeah. mm-hmm. because that would be an, an easy way to infiltrate. But that's not what's happening in the United States, but that's what people think is happening. And so hmm. we're doing it the exact opposite. We're saying, we're going to keep you there until we're satisfied that you're safe to come. And and we're going to put you through this ringer, we're going to put you through this multi-layered process with multiple checks, with extra cautions. And so that's I think that's where the 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 they look similar, but they're nothing alike. Mm-hmm. But in, I think in the popular mind, that's what people are 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 thinking. And, and oh my gosh, how can we you know, how can we let 20,000 Syrians in as if they're all going to show up tomorrow? <laughs> you know, it's like it doesn't work that way. Scott, thank you so much for for your insight and for uh, for the work that you do and helping to kind of name some of the truths about what's going on and, and maybe in the process, uh, you know, through this podcast, through your Facebook posts, through through other conversations that we can uh, help help alleviate some of that fear that that seems to be driving driving this conversation well i and i appreciate the opportunity i i think one of the things that really that really frustrated me was uh, in addition to being 
the the lawyer side of my life. I, I'm also a pastor, and and I was watching my Facebook feed, and, and all of people that I know that are claiming to be people of faith and people who are, are Christians, who are are clearly operating out of fear. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. whoa, time out. You know, if we're people of faith, you know, this is not Jesus does not call us to fear. Yeah, he he calls us to wade into the midst of the issues and begin to engage and begin to extend the love and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And and so as I looked at that and I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is dismaying because we as the church have a unique opportunity. You know, I look at it and I tell my church, the, the Great Commission says go to all the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? God's already taken that part of the step and he's brought the ends of the earth to us. Mm-hmm. We have a unique opportunity to reach people groups that would never ever be within our reach otherwise and so you know yes is it scary of course it is the journey of faith is you know we don't do it by sight we do it by faith and and so when i looked at that and i thought you know we need to encourage uh believers to stand up and say this is part of what it means to be a christian this is what it means to reach out and extend grace so that that's how I've approached it, and, and I'm thankful for the opportunity of, of, of things like what you're doing here. Thank you so much. Yeah, Scott, that, that's that's, that's perfect, and thanks for uh, kind of also naming your uh, the faith side of, of what it is that you do and, and all that supports uh, your work. So really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you having me. We had just a great conversation with with Scott a few years ago, and I remember it at the time for me being a really, really helpful conversation. Um, it highlighted a lot of the legal complexities for immigrants and refugees, something that I had no idea how right, complex it right. was. Um, and I'm sure that there are things that have changed over the last few years. In many ways, it's a different political landscape, but it's still, I think the point remains, it's more complicated than the sound bites that we allow yeah. it to be. Yeah. And that's why we're really excited to introduce you also to some of our new friends from Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, who are on the front lines of this work. And they're caring for immigrants and refugees through sanctuary churches and other organizations. We met them when we were on a road trip last last summer, and, and those conversations have also really stuck with me. Uh, today, we heard Scott talk about the legal side of things. In the weeks to come, our friends from Albuquerque will show us the human side of the conversation. And, and make sure to look out for those episodes. We're going to be releasing them in the next month or so. Yeah, but until then, thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So let us know what you think about the podcast by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. And take a moment to let us know what you wonder about and join us in the conversation. If you want to stay up to date with all the things that we've got going on in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.